So you've written 30 to 40 minutes worth of great songs and you've practiced them like crazy. How do you figure out how to play those songs in front of an actual audience? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Today, in another installment of our Music Industry 101 series, we're talking about booking, how to get booked, how to become a booking agent or a talent buyer, and what's the difference between those two jobs. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Josh Brinkman is a booking agent at Monterey International. Josh, welcome to the future of what? Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's going okay. Yeah, glad to have you. So we are doing this week one of our Music Business 101 episodes, and we're focusing on booking. And basically what these episodes do is help people understand sort of an area or a thing that people do in the music business. So you're a booking agent. We need to know what that means, what do you do all day, and how did you get into it? So start anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Sounds good. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to present my opinion on it. Yeah. Let's start from the beginning then. How did I get started? So at a point not too long ago, almost 15, 16 years ago, I began with an internship during a study overseas program that I was involved in in London, England and had an opportunity to work or intern at an agency based in London with a very young agent. So my responsibilities, fortunately for me, were less going to get coffee and more helping with day-to-day logistical stuff of booking and updating spreadsheets or databases, things of that sort. That agent, his name was Steve Zapp or is Steve Zapp, who at the point in time also allowed me or uh, you know offered to have me get a little bit more involved and call clubs or talk to other promoters we were working with at the time about friends of his acts and actually get some hands-on experience booking club shows across the UK. So that's how you got a taste of, of this biz. Yeah, that's how I got introduced to the more of the nuts and bolts side of the Asian world. And what was it about this that appealed to you? Like, what did what made you think, oh, yeah, I want to do this? I really just loved, I mean, at that point in time, I was in my early 20s, and I loved growing out and going to shows. I mean, I, I really think I, I had gotten a really good taste of going out to clubs and loving the live side of, of the business more so than even getting into the recorded side. And so having an opportunity to kind of get that insight or or be more involved in that part of it was really attractive to me. And especially having the opportunity to work in a part of the world or just a city that, that I had never lived in before was completely fascinating. And we were going out, you know, almost every night, six, seven nights a week, seeing new bands and going to three or four different shows a night. So I learned really early on from Steve, just about the hustle and, and building relationships, which is really what a lot of the business, in my opinion, is about in general at a very early, early age, what I felt was, at least. So tell us about the nuts and bolts of, of what you do. Basically, you represent artists, and then you try to get those artists gigs. Is that the sort of the basic? Yeah, that, that, that its core. That, that would be 
a lot of what it is. I have a roster of artists that I am fortunate to work with, be involved in with their teams overall, and you know work diligently and, and hard at coordinating tours. You know whether or not it's based on recording cycles or not. You know it depends on the time of year, or time in the artist's career, but also you know we we target have specific targets for festival plays or summer series plays and and then use those anchors or those festivals and series to build tours around as well. And, you know, allows the the artists to go out and tour outside of more of the traditional, let's put out a record and then we tour the country for four weeks and then we go home type model. So it's been my experience in recent years that it's been one of the toughest things about a young band's career is is getting a booking agent. You know, I would say that, you know, even in some cases harder than getting a label in the last, you know, eight years or so. Sure. So what would you, what advice would you give to young artists when they're thinking about trying to get a booking agent and how, how they should go about that? It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I feel, um, and maybe there's some of this that, that you would agree with as well. I feel if like over the last five to 10 years, obviously so many things have changed, but one, one, one thing in general I've noticed that has changed a lot is bands are earlier and earlier are signed by specific agents or that agents are bringing in acts at, at a point in time when they might not even have a record deal or there might even be a manager or even a lawyer in place. And, and some of that is encouraging to see, but also I think that's also, there, there could be a, a dangerous side of that as well. You know, as my, myself as an agent, I've always, you know, prided what I do on the fact that one, first and foremost, I really need to be into the music or what's being created. Uh, without that, I don't understand how somebody could pour in the amount of time that we all collectively work together and even what I do outside of that to really help or be a contributing member of that artist team to, to achieve success. So first, I've really just got to be in love with what the artist is doing. And then, you know, a lot of other factors can come into play after that. You know, how, what other team members do they have? Is there a manager? Is it somebody that I know? Is it somebody that I have had a relationship with before? Is it somebody that I'm interested in working with, you know, now and in the present? Is there a label in place? Obviously, the way things are currently, that's not necessarily as big of a piece of the puzzle as it used to be. You know, is there a lawyer? Are there other other people on the team that are helping us all achieve the goals of success that that we want to hit? Those are other factors that play into it. But more, more, let's say ninety percent of the time, it's just really if I fall head head over heels in love with the music or what they're creating. Right. And I think that's true for all of us who work in the music industry is we want to work with the people that we love. <laughs> let's, let's hope so. Bottom <laughs> line. Yes, no doubt. <laughs> when the art comes from a place like that, if, if it's being created out of that feeling, then, you know, and out of that situation, then hopefully the, the artists surround themselves with other people who share the same vision or feel that passionately about what they're doing. So your your job is kind of, what would you say the percentages are? So you spend some of your time talking to the bands that you work with, but then you spend a lot of your time talking to people who we would call either promoters or talent buyers, people who actually work at the clubs and festivals where you're trying to get your artists gigs. And later in this episode, we're going to be talking to Valina Vigo of the 40 Watt Club. So I'm sure you're quite familiar with her. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I, she has an amazing history in the business too. And, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting as an agent. We I feel a lot of the times that we are a very almost like a, a fulcrum point for the whole process. Right? Is that we talk to all different sorts of sides of the business. You know how have direct communication with the artists who I always love to have that open door policy. And then we speak with managers obviously as well, and then connect with the promoters to help get the gigs done. I play very open relationships with the label or labels, depending on what they need or however we can be, you know, an active member of the team and try to just keep as many different doors open as possible. You know, just keep working towards the common goals. Don't ever want to have a situation where somebody feels like they can't approach me or, or the team and or my team and get information or, you know, open channels of communication are critical. So how do you, this is just my own personal interest, how do you figure out what the sweet spot is in the terms of number of bands you can work with comfortably? I mean, have you done that? Have you had like way too many bands that you were working with all of a sudden you're like, uh-oh, I got to cut back or then... Conversely, you have like a certain number of bands and you're like, you know, I've, I've got some extra time. I could do more. Like when do you hit critical mass? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I kind of predicate on like, I at least like sleeping four hours a night. <laughs> We're backwards from there. Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's just every, there is not a perfect formula. I think every agent is different. I, I, you know, I don't, have a specific number in mind. I try to view it in a way that as long as if I'm deciding to work with a band, as long as it doesn't take away time that we would spend working with other artists on the roster, as long as it fits into the overall puzzle and that we would also be able to dedicate enough time based on the current workload that we have to help that band really grow, then it makes sense. If it doesn't, if if there's an artist that, doesn't seem that we would be able to, you know, fit into everything else that we're doing. I think it would be less attractive to work with at that point in time. You know, I have a lot of admiration for agents that can have rosters of a hundred acts. I don't think that would ever be something that I could do. I'm always consumed by making sure that everybody is, has enough that they want to do and, or should be doing. And I just, I try not to take away from the overall growth pattern for everybody. So my last question is just one of, you know, do you have a a particular success story, like one where you started working with a young band or something and you just saw them blossom and it just made your whole job worth it? I I think the example that I would really go to for that isn't necessarily around a young band, but, uh, you know, I worked with Charles Bradley and his extraordinaires and Charles put his first record out when he was 62 and we've had an amazing five-year run with three records, an incredible team from beginning to where we are now. And it's, you know, the music that they create and that they put out there and his ability to, in every situation, deliver night after night after night with a live performance has been incredible, incredibly rewarding. You know, his impact on an audience and, and a crowd is unlike anything I've ever seen. And you know, if you ever have an opportunity to see him, you got to make sure you get up in the front and so you can get a nice, big, sweaty hug. That's what it's all about. He played the Libera Awards last year, and it was mind-blowing. I mean, <laughs> I, it's it, truly, 
It was one of the greatest shows I ever saw. And to say that for an industry, you know, an industry night is is pretty special. I mean, he brought it. They were fantastic. <laughs> well, that's a great example, Josh. Thanks for giving us that. And thank you so much for doing this. Josh Brinkman is a booking agent with Montreal International. Josh, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What? Absolutely. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And it's always great talking to you, Portia. by Marnie Stern. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Valina Vigo, talent buyer at the 40 Watt Club in Athens, Georgia. Valina, welcome to The Future of What. Yay! Yay! It's so nice to have you. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. So this is exciting because this is your 25th anniversary at the 40 Watt. Yes. Which is a huge deal. Wow. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> does that make you feel good or does it make you feel old? <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny that you say that. And my husband, David Lowry, was telling me, since he's a mathematician, that he's like, you know, you've booked over 6,000 shows, right? And that <laughs> caused me a little bit of a panic. A little bit of, uh, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, I've, I've booked, you know, that many shows. So, it makes me feel good because, you know, 25 sounds, that sounds like a good run. You know right. what I mean? So if I retired, it sounds solid. It sounds like I, you know, put in my 25 to life kind of thing. You got the gold. You're going to get the gold watch. You can retire. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Absolutely. That's hilarious. It really is. So on today's show, we're talking about talent buying as a part of the profession that, you know, people don't necessarily know a ton about. I thought you'd be an excellent person to talk to you for that topic. Yeah, thanks. So do you want to tell us, just start out by telling us how you got involved in talent booking? Sure. So I was in an all-girl band in Athens, Georgia in the 80s and was in a band for six years. 
And of course, knew all the people that were in the club business because I was playing their venues. And when the band broke up, I was like, what am I going to do? I'd only gone a year to college and, you know, I was in my early 20s. And lo and behold, the 40 Watt Club, which has been around since the 70s, moved into the location that it is now. And it's a bigger location. And I just kind of walked in and said, hey, do you need me to answer the phone? You know, hospitality, whatever you need me to do. And just thank goodness, you know, I was there at the right time. And they said, we actually do need someone. (laughs) And so I kind of slid in that way. And so I always tell anyone that wants to be in the business, you know, ground floor is great. You know what I mean? Being a gopher or, you know, answering phones because you're right there when they are starting to hire. Right. So it might not be the, you know, exact position you want to be in, but it always seems like just around, you know, your little area is the people that get hired. Absolutely. Did that for a short while and one of the owners left and I kind of just slid in and, you know, 25 years later, I'm still there. So it certainly wasn't any kind of job interview kind of was at the right time at the right place, I guess. Right. Now, a club like 40 Watt is a special kind of club. It's, you know, I grew up in New York City, so we had CBGBs. We had later on Brownies. We had some really great rock clubs that were sort of, Mm. you know, places where people you could always count on seeing really great shows, you know, and and when you were sure. a kid, you would get excited and be like, oh, I'm going to go to CB's and see what's playing. Even on the Sunday afternoon shows, you know, that was pretty, you know, exciting for us to go and, and check that out. So the bands that have come out of the 40 Watt have been, you know, legendary REM and... Uh, Montreal, Nitro Bilk Hotel, Drive-By Truckers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I guess I love what you're saying. I mean, you know, when I was 17, 18 years old going to, there was a venue in Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it was a club, exactly what you're saying in the early 80s called the 688 Club. And you could go there any day, you know what I mean? And see Mm -hmm. Sissy and the Banshees, Iggy Pop. And of course, when you're that young, you don't know these bands, but you know you're going to see something fun. So I've always given them credit because every day of the week, it was a different type of band, I guess. It was definitely in the new wave punk rock era, you mm-hmm. know, but it still was like stuff that they turned us on to, especially being from the South. Yeah. So when I started booking the 40 wide, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're kind of known that we don't do cover bands and we don't do, you know what I mean? Certain things because we kind of think of that stage almost being kind of like the Apollo, you know, right. who's been on that stage is kind of precious to us. Right. And we have been kind of tastemakers without even knowing that's what we were kind of doing in the early nineties. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely had, you know, pavement and, you know, a bunch of really my morning jacket and band of horses, maybe when there was 25, 30 people there right. <laughs> and then it grew. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, from 91 until now, you know, we're kind of known for having, you know, kind of starting people. And I think that's why they kind of come back to us not really having to because we're only 800 capacity, but just going, hey, man, you gave us our start. You know, you believed in us. And we absolutely did, but we're music fans first, for sure. And that's an important part. I was just going to ask you about being a talent buyer. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a a couple of really important points about being a talent buyer, but one of them is that you're really a very significant kind of gatekeeper Mm. because you let bands have a chance. You let young bands have a chance and get up in front of an audience and see if, A, they can really do this rock and roll thing, Mm -hmm. and B, if people love it, you know? Right. So talk a little bit about how, about the discernment, you know, what do you need to do when you you get, I mean, I'm assuming you just get demos like the rest of us constantly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of my, I guess, 
stories that I always tell is I, I saw that movie, Eight Mile. I don't know when that that movie came out. Yes. But I was so sad because in one part of it, it this, you know, probably hip hop guy was handing off his cassette, you know what I mean, to somebody important. And the guy just threw it in the trash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, just, it devastated me. It made me so sad. And it was like, man, you know, like, you know, I guess I was thinking about myself and my job. But like, if I ever felt like doing that, you know what I mean? If I ever felt that I just wanted to throw away somebody's, you know, CD or demo or not listen, you know, I need to pass the baton mm-hmm. and give it to somebody, you know, who like me when I was in my 20s starting this, they deserve that because you were in a band, I was in a band. That's a really, that's already hard getting on stage mm-hmm. anyway and writing original songs. Right. You kind of need, even though like it might not be my taste of music, I still respect the people, the artists that are making music. And, you know, if I, like you said, if I get kind of tired of listening or listening to someone's story or them coming into the 40 watt or the bucket theater where I also work, you know what I mean? I I just need to pass the baton to somebody, another talent buyer that, you know what I mean? Wants to give them that start. Mm -hmm. So that's really important to me to respect everyone that comes in, because as you're saying, they might just come in as a, what we call a baby band who just started maybe a year or two in they've been playing house parties. They probably can only draw 50 to a hundred people, but you know, you never know they might, you know, become huge. And so I kind of treat everyone exactly the same mm-hmm. to be quite honest. Wow. So, cause it just really wouldn't be fair to, to, you know what I mean? To talk down to someone who's just starting out in their career. Right. Yeah. I assume you have a lot of good stories of people that you gave their first or second chance to and are now, you know, out there making it as career musicians. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess my, you know, the big story for me was Nirvana because the Nevermind just came out. It was a cassette and my friends in REM, I was up at their office and they had a cassette because I think they were both on Warner Brothers. And I grabbed the cassette from the manager and I said, Hey man, can I listen to this? I, I've seen them, you know, they played the masquerade in Atlanta. And so I went down to the 40 watt and I'm like, we have to have this band. And it was $1,500. And the owner was like, that's really expensive. Are you sure? And I'm like, yes, I'm sure. (laughs) Right. Uh (laughs) And so, you know, the rest is, you know, history, of course, because by the time in October, when the record probably came out, I don't know when it came out, maybe in September, do you know what I mean? It already had broke. Yeah. So obviously it was a smash hit. But the beautiful thing about it is, is that, you know, they were huge REM fans. So we took the whole band, you know, to Peter Buck's house so he could, they could, you know, see his record collection and all that good stuff. And then many years later, when we had Foo Fighters, you know, Dave Grohl told me like that was one of the funnest times that Nirvana had on tour was kind of, you know, running away to Athens and, going to the grit restaurant and going to Peter Buck's house. And I don't know, it's just, it's just a great story, but it was such a big deal to me, but to realize that they had just as much fun, that was kind of a cool feeling for sure. Absolutely. No doubt. (laughs) So when you're listening, I mean, do you do most of your discovery stuff from, from CDs, from stuff, from music that people send you, or is it word of mouth? Like, how do you do your actual job? Well, I think, I think over 25 years, it's been kind of different. You know what I mean? Now you can Shazam something, you know, like on a radio show or on a TV show and go, what is that? Oh, I'm into that. Right. Mm. And before you might see them like at a house party or you might hear a CD or now I have, you know, my interns and my assistants are, are at the age, you know, the 40 watt club is in a college town. So the demographic is probably 18 to 25. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to know everything in that 
world all the time. <laughs> Tell me about so it. That's why I pretty much, yeah. So I pretty much like, you know, just ask my interns or whatever, or even be driving back and forth from Atlanta to Athens because the Bucket Theater's in Atlanta and I, you know, that's a, you know, a 1500 cap theater. So the opening bands, you know, that's where I saw first aid kit. And it's really interesting once you get the theater level, the opening bands end up kind of exploding in the, you know what I mean? In a year or two too. Mm -hmm. So I definitely try to get there early to check out, you know, support slots and stuff like that. But I mean, I don't do it all myself. I certainly ask, you know, anybody and everybody, Hey, what are you listening to? And it doesn't really matter what it is. I just kind of need to know what's, you know, what's going on and what, what they like and stuff like that. But I mean, I certainly like, you know, this band called real estate. And a couple of years ago, I was just, you know, I was kind of like, Oh my God, I've got to have them, you know? And when I got to have them at the 41, I think I've had them twice now. It was just like, you know, there's something hit me, like you're saying, kind of in the solar plexus. That's what I always say. Something like emotional hits me where I go, you know, this means something to me and I bet you it'll mean something, you know what I mean, to the masses too. So I'm usually, I'm pretty right about that usually. That's good to be right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Well, if I wasn't, I mean, I don't think the 40 watt would be around, would it? Well, right. Exactly. (laughs) You lose 10 shows and you're out because we're an independent club, you know, it's just one owner. So it's not, we're not owned by a corporation. So you really can't lose money. I mean, that's the only thing that's a little scary. I always say, you know, I've never gambled in my life, you know, like in a casino, but I gamble every day in my life right? (laughs) because I'm gambling on, you know, the club's money to make sure patrons want to buy tickets to go to this show so I can pay for the guarantees. Absolutely. Well, and my job at running a record label is, is very similar, but I wanted to ask you, (laughs) because, <laughs> yes. you know, as you know, it's like these the trends in music change all the time and, and you know, things mm-hmm. come in and go out. And for me as a label, you know, I always have to worry about that because I'm like, well, we're not an EDM label. So even if EDM is mm-hmm. really hot right now, I can't just suddenly start putting out dance music because that's not the audience that we've cultivated over 25 years. Is it similar for a club like the 40 Watt or do you guys have more flexibility in terms of genre? I think you're right. I think we have a little bit of flexibility and I think we have to because I, if I only, you know, my genre is indie rock. And so if my, if I saw all I wanted to book, I mean, I probably wouldn't be booking, you know, as much as I have to, you know, I have to be open almost six days a week. We're open Monday through Saturday. There's definitely during the summertime where we're only open like four days a week, but the owner likes to be open. And so a couple of years ago when the country music became so popular, you're not going to say no to Dirk Bentley and Kenny Chesney coming to play your room. You (laughs) know what I mean? And and I've had that. So I've had to stay. I've I've had everything from Kenny Chesney to Snoop Dogg. So, you know, I've definitely done rap and I've definitely done, you know, metal like Mastodon and stuff like that. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It is a little different than a record label. And I do commend you because you have to kind of stand you know, with what y'all believe in and even in management, because I'm, you know, I'm a a band manager as well. And I've certainly had bands ask me to manage them. And I I knew I probably could make money from them, but I, you know what I mean? It just wasn't my thing. I didn't feel like I could put a hundred percent behind it. And so I had to decline. So do you see what I'm saying? I still think there's integrity in how we book, 
but it is a little different these these times. We always say every four years when these kids graduate, we kind of have to figure out what they're interested in. <laughs> right. It's a whole Does new group. Does that make group. sense? <laughs> yeah. 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 So you're saying from 1991 to 2016, it has definitely changed. Just thank goodness Athens is, you know, my goodness, we have so many great musicians that, you know, maybe like, oh, you know, the 80s was REM and B-52s and then the... 90s was, you know, Neutral Milk Hotel. And then, you, you, you know what I mean? Thank yeah. goodness, every four years or two, well, at least seven years, you have these bands that kind of, you know, blow up. Right now we have Mothers that's doing great and Reptar. And, but when I say great, I mean, they're doing well in our town. We're selling out the Forty Water, the Georgia Theater, but they're doing great nationally as right. well. Yeah. It's always like, you know, crossing fingers or knock on wood. We don't have to always talk about the 80s. <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't have to say, well, back in the day I had, you know, I can actually say, wow, man, have you listened to this new band? This band's killer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. such a big deal. Yeah. I mean, God forbid, you know, it's like if Kill Rockstars had to be like, well, we once had this band called Bikini Kill. And if that was all we ever had to say, <laughs> that would be <laughs> kind of sad. Oh, no, thank God yes. we've been lucky enough to have some other bands yeah. along the way. But I mean, but thank goodness, like for her using that example, is like she's got the Julian Ruin that I have on hold. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's just like at least she's like progressing into like different, you know, and I've had her other, I guess you'd call, what would be, it wouldn't be side projects. It would be just other projects she did after Bikini Kill. Right. Like you, La- you know what I mean? and everything. Yes. Yeah. Who I love. Yeah. Like in my top, I did my top 20 of, you know, live shows of all time. They're one of them, right? Yeah. At the 40 watts. So <laughs> It's like you you go back into the, the stable of what you love and stuff like that, and then and then you have to kind of see what's yeah what's out there. But thank goodness people are still, you know, creating great music. Thank goodness. <laughs> I know, and it's so it's harder and harder. I mean, you guys are certainly in a position to know this what David's been doing, mm-hmm. but it's just it's harder and harder to be a career musician these days. And and that's why I started this radio show because I wanted to talk to people who are in the business of helping people mm. maintain careers as artists because that's really yeah. what we're all doing here. Is ultimately, you know, we're not in the business of one hit wonders. Nobody wants a band to just you know do one thing and then disappear and go be like waiters or you know yeah absolutely. Something. And I do think it's different. Like you just said, I think you can't have maybe some people that, you know, didn't have a trust fund or something like that, you know, they don't have people's money to go and go into the studio. And I hope that, you know, things do change in that, you know, in that regard. But I also know from David and from myself over the years, you know, I don't just book the 40 watt club. You know what I mean? That I had kind of finesse into management, into other booking stuff. So when you combine all my efforts, that's a really nice living. Mm-hmm. But if I had just stayed, you know, at the 40 watt in Athens, Georgia, that's not that great of a living. Right. And so I think that people need to kind of open their minds if they want to be in the industry as an artist or, you know, a producer or record label stuff to kind of think about, you know what I mean? Like all the facets and kind of learning all the facets because it all, all kind of comes under this umbrella and it works really well. I mean, yes, you work a lot, but you know what I mean? Under that umbrella, you, you realize, you know, more than you thought, I guess would be Mm -hmm. a good word. So I don't think people should give up, but I don't think maybe just getting out of, you know, college or something, thinking like that, you know, somebody's going to run and get, you know, a $50,000, $60,000 job yeah. oh my <laughs> in gosh. the industry really easily. It's not <laughs> as easy as, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not as easy. Yes, those days um, are behind us, that, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I've always lived in that secondary market or in that small little college town where it wasn't really big money anyway. You, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I always, I mean, I never thought, and that's why I think that Barry Buck, who's the owner of the 40 watch, she's a super cool girl. And, you know, we, we've never thought we were going to get rich off, you know what I mean? The, the 40 watch, but we've been rich in other ways, I guess is the good word. And as you're saying, we're going through my 25 anniversaries was really pretty cool to get people, you know, musicians and just booking agents and stuff, you know, emailing me and going, you go girl, because <laughs> as you know, there's not that many women that are in the industry anyway, that aren't just assistants. <laughs> right. That's true. So, I mean, to be honest. And so that's why, you know, I always hire, you know, women and all that stuff. Cause I just want them to have a chance to, you know, to do something great for themselves. That's fantastic. Have a good jumping start. Yep. Yeah. So what would you, what advice would you give if there's young people listening to this radio show who would like to go into talent buying? Mm-hmm. What kind of advice would you give them? Well, I think you have to go to shows and you don't know how many people come and want to be my assistant or think they want to be a talent buyer or own their own venue and don't go out. <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, for the next 10, 15 years, you got to be out and about. You've got to go to those house parties. You've got to, you just got to go to shows. You've got to go you know, if there's a festival nearby, and I don't mean the bigger ones, I mean just like small festivals, because that's where you're going to find the newer talent and stuff like that. And you've got to realize you're going to be working, you know, 12 hour days. I mean, when you're a talent buyer, you, you know, you're there at load in and you're there at closing, you know, and so you, you, you got to realize that it's, you know, it's, it's not easy, but it certainly is. If that's what you love music and you do want to be, the tastemaker in your town, you know what I mean? That's kind of, you gotta, you kind of have to pay your dues there for a good long time. I would just say that before, you know, you would, you know, read blogs or read, you know, back in the day when you read Rolling Stone or Spin Magazine or, you know what I mean? Those kind of things. I mean, you just have to kind of be on trend, I guess, and just know, know what's out there and, and start, you know, becoming friends with the local bands because as much as I love national acts, you know, if I didn't have my local stock in the local, you know, world in Athens, you know, we're not going to have national acts every day of the week. And so you need to, you know, become friends with the uh, with the fellow musicians and stuff like that. Absolutely. Well, Valina Vigo, we are so happy to talk to you. Congratulations <laughs> on your 25th anniversary of booking the 40 Watt. And thanks so much for coming on The Future of What? Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.
That was Chandelier Searchlight by Deerhoof. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Next up, we're going to listen to Eric Gerber, talent buyer at the Doug Fur Lounge in Portland, Oregon. He was speaking on the MoGo music panel hosted by Jason Fellman. For more info on this panel, go to Vortex Magazine's website, vrtxmag.com. So I'm the in-house buyer at the Doug Fur Lounge on Burnside and basically fielding most of the local, regional, and some national bands is part of the in-house job. It kind of goes without saying that I do get inundated with a lot of emails, requests, and it's just me. So I'm the one handling that. No assistant in that process. When it comes to the production element, I do have a team of people, and I do have marketing help from other people as well. I guess when it comes, I think we'll get deeper into the processes as the questions go. But And as far as my agency goes, it's been around for about 20, oh, going on 22 years. I just recently brought on about a year and a half ago, one other person to help me because I have about 20 clients and they tour. I, t- I cover mostly North America, but some international touring as well. And it can be, you know, it's, it's a responsibility that I take, you know, very, very seriously that people have given me, you know, They've entrusted me to be their primary source of income in many cases. So that's a lot of pressure, and I take it very seriously. And one thing I'll say just right off the bat with that is if you don't have a large draw and you are looking to tour outside of your regional market, time is your next best commodity. Get to people early. They're a lot more likely to find space on their calendar for a band that they like musically when their calendar is empty than when their calendar is full. So just something just to think about. So someone contacts you, and this is one of the questions that has come up several times online already, so I'm going to go ahead and ask this early. What are the red flags? So that first email comes in, the first contact, what are the red flags that say, I don't think I should be going any farther with this artist? Yeah, I want to stress there needs to be a link to an example of what you are Sounding like at least, if not video preferred, presenting what you are going to present on the stage. And additionally, even before that, the first thing that I look for, and, I, and it's even on the Doug Fur website, but basically if an email comes in to me and it doesn't say what date or a very narrow date range you're looking for, I can't really help you because if you guys saw the calendar that I had to work with, you wouldn't believe it. I didn't believe it till I got there. But there's 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 holds deep on days, even weekdays. And if you just tell me, I'm looking for a date in October, it blows my mind because I can't even, it just doesn't make any sense for me to sit and go through the calendar and be like, okay, well, you can get 12th hold on the 3rd and 5th hold on the 4th and 8th hold on the 6th, the 7th, you know, the 7th's not available, but the 9th, you know, it's at that point, it takes me... It'll take me like 20 minutes to like, you know, I have to look in the calendar, figure it out, write it down, and I got to transpose it back onto your email. So what I'm looking for, even before the link to the, your, you know, example of your music is we're looking for October 12. If October 12 is not available, October 13 works. And it's funny, I'm saying October, but truthfully, we don't even have weekends available now. Last I looked, and I remember, it was until November. So where there were, it's completely open, where you'd be able to say, you know, I can draw 299 people, and I want this Friday. We're looking at November and December at this point. So that's the other thing. Time, lead planning, that is 
really important. When I get emails from people in April about May, I, I don't even have to look. I can respond, sorry, that date's not available because the month is gone. So would it be appropriate to send you an email asking, when is your first truly free weekend and can we work with that? Like, is that cool? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that works. Like, even if we don't have dates that we're available, but we would be able to make ourselves available to your calendar? Like, Yeah, if an appropriate band that can do can do the numbers that we need on a weekend comes at me and says, can you tell me the next available weekend date? I will give them the next re most reasonable available weekend date and then ask them to you know build a bill, present me the bill. At that point, I send back an offer. If it's a first hold offer, that means you have first choice and right of refusal. If it's second, third, fourth, it means that at that point you accept it and then I can go back to the people who have holds above you and then I can challenge for that hold. So, yeah, but a, a, I would give you time to build a bill, and then hopefully somebody, if you, if you do have the first hold, if I, somebody doesn't come around once the second hold, then challenges you, and you're not ready to present a bill at that point. Just really quickly, explain the whole process, because we all deal with this at some point. Okay, it's like getting in line for the water fountain, basically. So if you're the first in line... There's no cutsies or back doors or whatever they call them these days. So you're getting in line at the drinking fountain. You have first hold. That means you get to drink first. If you come next, you're second hold. So you don't get to cut this person. This person gets to drink at the drinking fountain as long as they want, right? There's no rule. There's no time limit on how long they can drink at the drinking fountain. But if you get to the point where you are like, you know what? I know I want that date. Can you send me an offer? I'll send over an offer that, I, that you have to then agree upon. You come back to me and you say... You either tweak it, oh, we want a $12 ticket instead of a $10 ticket or something like that. After the negotiation process is done, you say, I want the date. And I'm confident that you're going to do the numbers, so I say to the person in the front of the line, okay, man, you've had enough water. You have a day or two to get back to me. So if you're first hold, you then can say, you know what, I'm going to hang out here for longer than that. I'll, I want an offer, and I'm going to take it, and sorry to the second hold. If you're a third hold, fourth hold, at that point, it's a day per hold in front of you. Because I have to get the first person in this first spot, they have first right of refusal, they say no, or you know, they, they don't, they're not gonna take it, they walk away from the fountain, the second person gets to step up to the fountain for a little while, third, and then by the time you're drinking, that means we're doing a show. How does a band or, or an artist go about determining their market value when they're trying to come up with that price to quote? So, we structure deals in lots of different ways at the Doug Fur. As a booking agent, I take a look at how we do things, and I've noticed that typically if you are a band that draws and you are going to draw well, the best deal for you is the door deal. It, because otherwise, as soon as we give a guarantee, we then immediately build a back-end situation. A back-end is a list of all the expenses with a promoter profit then built on top of that. So those expenses include the artist fee, security, sound person, box office, stage manager, if you will, production person for the night, hospitality, promotion. There's, I mean, there's ASCAP, BMI. Okay, that's it. I think that's it. But um, you can see that there's a long list and all those things are line items. And then if you're asking for a parking spot, you know, that'll, we don't typically give those to local, but for traveling bands, parking spots. You know, all these things, everything is, we have to, we have to pay for it. It's not free. We have to pay the staff. We have to pay the hotel to pay for that parking spot because we're not, we, you know, Doug Fur is located adjacent to the Jupiter Hotel, but we are not the same business. 
So we have no direct affiliation. We have some overlap in programming partnerships, but there's no direct affiliation. So all those things then you have to get over the hump to then receive additional fees past your guarantee. So even if you're a band that can draw 300 people, which is roughly our cap, you're going to make more money if you come in and ask for a door deal. A lot of the nationals that come through, it's surprising to me as a booking agent over and over again that their agent is asking for a $1,000 guarantee. And when they can get, you know, when the gross of the, at the end of the night is going to be $4,000 and they're not going to get more than $1,000 because they have to cover all these expenses or maybe they're going to get slightly over that. Whereas if they just took the 60% after the minimal fees, you know, they're going to walk with $2,800. So it blows my mind as a booking agent, and I have a lot of very you know successful, talented artists on my roster. I prefer the door deal in many cases. The only time I'm really reaching out for a guarantee is if it's a routed date where I know that I'm going from here to here, and there's an, a big anchor date waiting for me. And I just want to make sure that gas and hotel and lodging and artist fees for like side players are covered. Normally, I'll go door deal all day long. And there just seems to be this feeling from artists that door deals are, like if they're offering me a door deal, they don't respect me. It's like, that's one way to look at it, I guess. But as an, as an agent, I prefer the door deal. The Doug Fur is very much like a, a goal for us. And my plan, which you, you just blew my mind with that whole like year out thing. Our plan was like, we did a really great show at the Secret Society. We got like 80 people through the door. And then our plan was like, okay, now we're going to go do, you know, Mississippi Studios and we're going to get like 100 people through the door. And then once we have all these things that happened, we're going to call you and say, hey, we did X, Y, and Z. But it sounds more like you want us to be like a year out, we're going to play the Doug Fur. But how do I assure you that in a year? Because I feel like, yeah, sure, like we're talented, we work really hard. I bet you in a year I could get 300 people in the Doug Fur. But like, I haven't shown any of that work yet. How, what is the best way to be like... In a year, please give me this gig because I'm going to go do all of this work in the year now to make sure that I fill Doug Fur in late summer 2017. Great question. So the hold mechanism works within that. So if you reach out to me and you explain to me sort of your trajectory, I would give you a hold, you know, a year out. I'm not going to give you a first hold, though, even if that's the date is fully available, because I can't, I can't really realistically just bet on your band meeting all of its goals and, and points to get to the place. But I would put a, a note on the calendar, for, you know, for instance, saying, you know, this band wants to play the Doug Fur, and I would make a note on the calendar. I would probably encourage you with a scenario that you're painting to make it a very special show, a CD release show, or something else that you can market in a greater capacity. I'd also encourage you to find other bands that can build out a bill and round out a bill because depending on the day of the week that you're looking for or the date that you're looking for, I need 200, 250, 300 people to show up. So if you can find another band that has a history of headlining or two other bands that have histories of being strong support. And you can then demonstrate to me, you know, a few months out before that date is, while that date is still available, that you, you know, we did 220 people at Mississippi. 
or whatever venue it is on an actual hard ticket, not like a free show. At that point, you know, I'm, you know, I, I take most of the time I take people's word for it. Occasionally, if I feel like it's fabricated, I will try and do a little bit of background check on it. But for the most part, I'm, I'll, I'll take you at face value, at least far enough to the point where I will then solidify your hold, put in an offer, and then while you're deciding if the offer is going to work, I'll do my due diligence, and then you come back, and then the whole challenge scenario happens again. So basically, don't be afraid to reach out way out to get a hold, but be realistic. If you, if you think that in six months you're not going to be able to do 250 or 300 people, then spare us all the time because I'm, you know, you kind of, I can't, I can't play this game with you over and over and over again, but it is a game that I'm willing to play, especially if I, you know, I listen to everything that comes into me that has a date associated with it. I pull up and I listen to it and I try and see if, well, if the date is available, if, if, if the date's not available, I just write you back and say, I'm sorry, that date's not available. But once there's, you know, some traction and some process going on, I listen to everything and there, I have found bands. I mean, you're probably not surprising at all. There are great bands in this you know, region, in this city that I would love to just be like, sure, come play the room. And as soon as they're at the position to draw enough that where I'm covering those expenses that I told you about, the security that gets that we end up taking on, the house sound person that we end up taking on, the box office that we taking on, the extra advertising, the production person. I mean, not to repeat over and over, but all these expenses are things that at the end of the night when I write up my report, I don't want it to say negative. Oftentimes on the door deals, it does say negative. We lose money on door deals because we, if we do draw the 200 to 50 to 300 people, we assume that there's a certain level of drinking that sort of balances out that and you know and then we feel good about putting some money into the band's pockets everyone wants to get on a bill to be the opening act maybe some tips or advice for you know how does one get on a bill like that you know some bands coming through you know that you mesh with their audience how do you get on that bill how does that process work well i would suggest anyone who sees identifies a headliner that they want to play with and be on that bill that they actually reach out to the band either through management or through their agent or the band directly because the band has the ultimate say, the final say on who is going to play with them, especially if it's a band that is drawing well and is going to sell out the room and they don't need help, which seems to be the most popular submissions I get. So that's the first step. Now, I don't mind people sending in, you know, we would be great with these guys, we should play with these guys, you know, at that point, what I need from you, though, is I need your history in the market and, again, the same thing, video or audio or, you know, links and information. I would say it happens maybe not even 10% of the time that an agent will come back and say, we're looking for local support. And maybe 3% of the time that actually happens probably more accurate. So at that point, then I have, a, you know, I, I go back through my emails and I'm, I look for the headliner and I find people who submitted and then I, I forward that along. On some occasions when it's someone I've worked with before and I already know and they, they have a history in the, in the room, I will send it immediately on, be like, if you're looking for local support, this is, you know, a recommendation. But most of the time that just dies right there. So I wait for them to come to me and say, we're looking for local support. 
and then I submit what I have. And even then, a lot of times, it just seems that they end up pulling somebody from their label or pulling a friend or a buddy. So even the 3% of the time that I get that request, I would say the submissions I land for them are below that number. What are the red flags that maybe we should be looking out for when we're interacting with bookers and venues? Well, I wouldn't be afraid to follow up. Some of the time when I don't respond, it's actually because I'm actually considering the band and trying to figure out where I can place them or what would make sense. And then life gets busy and things get difficult and it slips as slips low on the priority. So actually, you know, I do my best to try and respond to everybody within 48 hours. If you don't hear from me, that's because you either didn't follow the cardinal rule on the website, which is give me a date, or you, I'm, I'm, you're, I'm considering you for something or, you know, things fall through the cracks or, you know, sometimes emails don't, you know, it doesn't, I, I don't get to every one of them as much as I'd like to. So until you hear no, just keep emailing. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Marnie Stern, Deerhoof, Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. And of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Talk soft so you fall asleep.
Yay! That was Feet Asleep by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down.